Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th of March with me, Ian Welsh. There was some great news for ocean conservation recently with a draft agreement under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea on the conservation and sustainable use of marine biological diversity of areas beyond national jurisdiction, better known as the High Seas Biodiversity Treaty. To find out a bit more about this and its implications, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with Andreas Hansen, Senior Policy Advisor, Ocean and Conservation Finance at the Nature Conservancy. Highlights of their conversation are coming up, as is my colleague Emily Heslop, talking with me about a couple of the panel sessions that will be part of the Future of Food Conference in Minneapolis at the end of May. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news. The annual letter from investors engaged with CDP, the corporate data disclosure platform, has been sent to the boards of more than 15,000 companies. The near 750 investors with $136 billion of assets under management have asked for more detail on environmental policy and impact. And there is a request this year for disclosure of plastics impact and the plans companies have to reduce it. CDP's platform currently enables companies to disclose on climate, deforestation, water and biodiversity data, with a plastics disclosure platform due for launch in the near future. CDP trumpets the fact that, despite reports of investors deprioritising ESG matters, the investor letter suggests the opposite. Rather, CDP says, capital markets are clear that they need comprehensive corporate environmental data to inform their investment and lending decisions across markets. The ocean plastics pollution problem continues, with microplastic becoming a real concern. New research suggests that between 2005 and 2019, the amounts of floating ocean plastics increased tenfold at 12,000 global data collection points, following 25 years of relatively stable levels of plastic pollution. The Five Gyres Institute have estimated that there are between 82 trillion and 358 trillion plastic particles in the ocean, with a mass of up to 4.9 million tonnes. The increase of microplastics is not only down to current levels of pollution, but also because of the degradation and breaking down of large pieces of ocean plastic. The researchers also conclude that despite the high profile that the ocean plastics problem has had over the past few years, international policies from the 1970s and 1980s on banning, dumping, waste, including plastics at sea, were stronger and better enforced than later, more voluntary measures since the 1990s. Deposit return schemes for packaging, particularly plastic bottles and aluminium cans, have been effective in many economies at maximising recycling rates. While the UK has been slow to move on bringing in such schemes, the devolved government in Scotland has been pushing on developing a high-profile scheme due to be introduced from August this year. So far, so good. However, the scheme has become increasingly controversial as it has required producers to register for the scheme and retailers, big and small, to commit to administer the returns via take-back machines. Products sold in Scotland will have premiums added to the retail price that consumers will then get back when they return them to stores. This process has been complicated enough, with many business groups calling for a delay to the launch so multiple potential glitches can be addressed. But the latest challenge to face the scheme's implementers is a potentially fatal clash with the UK's Westminster government over rules that prevent different regulations applying to the same products in England and Scotland. The UK government seems set to deny the Scottish administration's request for an exemption that would allow prices to be higher in Scotland. It's not clear how the proposed scheme could go ahead under such circumstances until a UK-wide scheme is introduced, which is on the cards in the medium term. As Scotland's national poet Robert Burns might have put it, the best laid schemes of mice and men going aft a glee. The US leg of Innovation Forum's Future of Food Spring Conference season is coming up at the end of May, when we will be in Minneapolis. We have got some fascinating panels and interactive sessions planned over the two days, and earlier this week I spoke with Conference Director Emily Heslop about two sessions that we're both looking forward to in particular. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Thanks, Ian. So we're talking about the Future of Food Conference, which is coming up on the 31st of May and the 1st of June in Minneapolis. 
So we've got some really interesting sessions coming up at the event, Emily. A particular one caught my eye was a session on the opening day when we're looking at the move from climate commitments to climate action and how brands can drive the net zero transition in agriculture. We're seeing some really interesting approaches from the agriculture sector as part of the transition to net zero. What are you hoping to get from this particular session? Yeah, so it's a really exciting session we're having at the conference. And what we've seen over the last few years is agriculture has a huge potential to be this force for good in the race to net zero. So seeing the conversation shift away from doom and gloom towards more solutions focused discussions, we're going to be speaking with major food and drinks brands to establish what effective climate leadership really means in practice. And we're going to be highlighting how brands are actually performing against current targets they've set and assess the solutions that can drive this transition from strategy into more action on climate. We've got panellists from Tate and Lyle and from JBS speaking on this. I guess others may be confirmed as we go. But what are each of those panellists going to bring to the discussion? Tate and Lyle have specific 2030 climate targets and commitments, including approved science-based greenhouse gas emission reduction targets. And last year, they actually sold a large proportion of the business. So they had to revisit these emissions targets and rethink their strategy. So it's quite an interesting example of how one organisation has adapted their roadmap alongside significant organisational change as well. And then in March 2021, most listeners will know that JBS pledged to reach net zero for its greenhouse gas emissions by 2040 and invest more than 1 billion in emissions reductions projects over the next decade. So their CSO is actually going to be joining us to discuss how they are putting these ambitious goals into action. So it's going to be a really interesting discussion and we'll see some more practical examples of what they're doing on the ground in terms of moving that strategy to action. Something else that's going to be a big feature of the event across a number of sessions is regenerative agriculture. I mean, one session that did jump out for me was the session where we're going to look at the regenerative farm of the future and talk about some of the tools and technologies that growers can use to increase efficiency, tackle waste and drive down emissions. So what are you hoping that this session will give? What are you hoping to hear at this session at the event? Yeah, so this session is actually a breakout session. So it's going to be a really practical, hands-on session. And we're going to be looking at on-the-ground realities of implementing regenerative agriculture practices. So our panellists will discuss specific tools and technologies that can be used to measure, verify and understand the impact of certain regenerative programmes. And we'll hear from key organisations on how to also align supply chain actors to incentivise and enable the adoption of regenerative agriculture at scale. So it's really that combination of the tools and technologies alongside working with the different actors within the supply chain. We've got a panellist from Oatly confirmed for that session. I know that other panellists will be confirmed in the near future. What are Oatly bringing to this session in particular? We've got Julie Coonan, who's the Sustainability Director, and she's going to be providing some real practical examples of some projects they're working on within the US. For example, they're working on a current project in Iowa and Minnesota that they're incentivizing corn and soy farmers to retake oats in as a third crop to ultimately improve the soil health, water quality and overall environmental impact on those farms. And it's also an additional income stream by including the additional crop into their rotation as well. 
lots of examples like this and we're going to have some additional panellists join as well as just Julie. Well, that'd be a really interesting session, no doubt. Looking forward to that very much. Listeners, it is a good time to get your tickets for this event, a future food conference on 31st of May and the 1st of June as we have a $400 discount, which podcast listeners can take advantage of through to close business on the 22nd of March using the discount code podcast at the checkout online. Emily, it's going to be a great event. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks for having me in. The agreement of a draft UN High Seas Biodiversity Agreement has certainly been good news. There are still a number of ratification steps before the agreement comes into force, and no doubt there will be some bumps in the road. But to get into some of the detail, Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson spoke with the Nature Conservancy's Senior Policy Advisor for Ocean and Conservation Finance, Andreas Hansen. So, Andreas, could you just give a little bit of background about what was at stake for these negotiations? You know, why were they taking place and why was the treaty needed? The main reason this treaty was needed is because the ocean is declining and the ocean is one interconnected system and two thirds of the ocean is in areas beyond national jurisdiction or the high seas and that makes up almost 50% of the Earth's surface. But we don't really have an overarching framework for conserving and sustainably using marine biodiversity in those areas. We have a patchwork of governance. Some organizations that deal with shipping, some do with fishing, some deal with deep seabed mining, and most of them only deal with it in certain areas. So we didn't have that overarching framework, and we really needed it. And this treaty was the chance to get that in place. If we didn't do this treaty, or if they were delayed again, as they've been delayed countless times, or agreements weren't reached, what would the consequence of that be? Where would we be? Well, I think we just have a continuation of a status quo that, frankly, is destroying the ocean. And that is not where we want to be or need to be, given that the world has agreed a new global biodiversity framework, which includes targets to protect 30% of the world's ocean as well as sustainably managing areas under fisheries and other activities. So without this treaty, we wouldn't have all the tools we need to address that situation. What was agreed in the negotiations and how significant is this going to be for ocean biodiversity? Quite a lot was agreed. So I would really call this a milestone, a landmark treaty for the ocean that has the potential to take us from that damaging status quo that I mentioned to a situation where we have a more nature positive governance framework, alongside lots of other things that need to happen in other bodies. But what specifically this treaty does is first, it establishes powers for countries to put in place marine protected areas in the high seas. And we didn't have that global universal power. There were certain bodies that could do that in parts of the high seas, but this establishes it for the whole of the high seas. The treaty, secondly, it puts in place a modern and new framework for how to do environmental impact assessments for human activities in the high seas. And it actually says that unlike most other frameworks for this in the past, you need to do a screening exercise if you think that an activity will have more than a minor or transitory effect on the marine environment. So you need to look at more activities earlier, and that is really positive. It also includes provisions for how to fairly and equitably share benefits that might arise from the use of marine genetic resources. And that's really important in terms of making sure that the benefits of the high seas actually belong to everyone. Because of course, countries have different abilities 
to access them currently. And so that was a key part of making this treaty possible and bring together developed and developing countries. And the last thing I'll mention is that across the treaty, decisions can be made by a majority. And that is really important. Of course, it says, and the best thing is always, if a consensus can be agreed so that there's full buy-in. But if that cannot be agreed, a few countries will not be able to block progress if all other countries agree that this is the right thing to do. So there's a three-quarter majority rule that applies across the treaty, and that is really good news for the environment. Is there anything that's missing or that isn't quite ambitious enough to do what really needs to be done to protect biodiversity in the sea? Yeah, with international negotiations, you never get everything you want. So of course, if I or other people who really are championing the environment had written this treaty, there are certain things we would, would have avoided that is in the treaty. So for instance, in the part of the treaty that deals with marine protected areas, there is a provision that means that countries can object to a marine protected area being established. And if they do so, it means that that area doesn't apply to them. That was necessary to get in the majority decision making. And I think overall, that's still a net benefit for the environment because it's better to be able to put something in place, even if it then doesn't apply to one country, rather than one country being able to prevent, let's say, 60 other countries from doing something that is good for the environment. I also mentioned earlier that the treaty puts in place this new framework for environmental impact assessment. And that framework applies to new activities. So let's say geoengineering is something that we are going to probably see more of in the ocean. And we now have a new and modern framework for how that should be done in a way that is conscious and sustainable with regard to the environment. What this treaty, again, needed to do to be agreed is that it had to leave certain other bodies and treaties alone to some extent. There's this principle of do not undermine and so you have regional fisheries management organizations that deal with fisheries. You've got the International Maritime Organization that deals with shipping. You've got the International Seabed Authority that deals with deep seabed mining. And what the treaty says is they will continue to do that and they will continue to use their regulations and standards for doing so. The regulations and standards that are part of this high seas treaty won't directly apply. What it does say, however, is that countries that sign up to the high seas treaty and say this is now the new best standard this is the new best practice globally have to promote that standard in those other bodies so there is a way of indirectly putting pressure on and saying you now have a new what good looks like globally and that should be also applied in these other bodies and quite frankly that is where a lot of the work is needed is to ensure that alongside the high seas treaty which can do some really positive things Countries also need to take more actions and higher ambition actions in those other bodies. So the Pisces Treaty is a really important tool of getting to an ocean positive future. And it needs to be alongside action in all of these other bodies that also manage activities of the ICs. And on that, in terms of accountability for the countries, what kind of accountability or enforcement mechanisms are there in the treaty? How can we ensure that countries actually keep to their commitments once they are ratified? Yeah, this is critical and it's one that's always tricky when it comes to international spaces and global commons. And there were a range of aspects of the treaty that help with this. There is a compliance and implementation committee that is supposed to support the implementation and compliance with what's in the treaty. 
It's a non-punitive committee, so it's there to support rather than punish. Some people may say, not that many teeth. There is also other committees that help with implementing other parts of the agreement. Really important to have a capacity building and technology transfer committee that will help with how developed countries should help developing countries to implement the treaty. I think one key aspect is this treaty establishes a whole lot more transparency about what happens in the high seas. A lot of activity in the high seas has kind of been out of sight, out of mind. And what this treaty does is to require countries to give much more public notification of what are they doing, what can they assess so that the impacts of what they are doing will be, are they using the best sites as possible to assess those things. And even though the international community will not be able to tell a country, no, you can't do this, it will have the information to say, I don't think you're doing this the right way. I don't think you're following international best practice. I don't think you're following the norms that are, and the international law that is being set out in this treaty. And that will hopefully create a race to the top where these international norms start becoming the way in which countries operate. And that is really how most international works. It's a normative framework that countries follow because that is the way the international community works. So that's for countries. Obviously, another very important actor in the oceans is international businesses, which obviously are active in seafood and seafood supply chains. How would the treaty impact them? In terms of enforcement and regulation of activity undertaken by businesses and companies, that is the responsibility of each and every country. A country is responsible for enforcing this new international law when it comes to their own nationals and vessels and activities that are essentially sponsored by that country. If a boat that is registered with a certain country does something wrong in the high seas, that country is responsible for sanctioning that boat. And again, this is where also the transparency will become really important because if a country isn't sanctioning in the right way, there's a mechanism for other countries to challenge the fact that the enforcement isn't happening. And can businesses get ahead of the treaty or what can they expect in terms of how it will impact their operations and can they be proactive about it now? I think they can be proactive in terms of looking at what this new framework for environmental impact assessment sets out. What are the processes that they should expect needing to engage with if they want to engage in new activity? There is still a lot that needs to be worked out. So the treaty has set the high level framework and the processes. It has also said that it will develop more detailed standards and guidelines for environmental impact. So I would say that forward-leaning and environmentally-minded businesses can absolutely get engaged with that process and provide input on what makes sense and is both environmentally sustainable and practical. Because obviously the regulations need to be applicable. They need to work for actual activities. That's the way they can be the most effective. There will be a process of developing those standards and guidelines and encourage people with an interest in sustainably using the high seas to get involved with that. And you've covered this a bit, but what is coming next? What's the process to put this treaty into action? There's quite a few steps, and we are obviously calling for states to move through them rapidly. As you said, there's the outcome of 10 years of negotiation, and the treaty only got over the line almost 24 hours on overtime. 
And so there wasn't time to translate it into all of the official languages of the UN, which is needed to actually formally adopt the agreement. So that's the first next step, is that the text that was agreed and is now frozen will go through this translation exercise, and then countries will reconvene and adopt it. And then the ratification process starts. And the agreement sets out that 60 countries need to ratify the agreement for it to come into force. That is quite a few countries, but it is pretty much in line with the Paris Agreement, which required 55 countries and 55% of emissions to ratify the treaty before it came into force. And the Paris Agreement was ratified in less than a year. What that tells us is that if there's political will and a push, that ratification period can really be quite short. And we need it to be short because, again, we have 20, 30 targets. The ocean has no time to waste. And we really need this process to go fast so that the words that are on the page of this agreement can be turned into benefits in the ocean. Well, thank you so much, Andreas, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And don't forget to register now for the Future of Food USA event in Minneapolis on the 31st of May and 1st of June. Podcast listeners can take advantage of a $400 discount extended to Wednesday 22nd of March using the discount code PODCAST at the online checkout. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh and until next week, goodbye.